angry, 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 angry at arthritis. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Angry at Arthritis podcast. I'm Steve O'Keefe, and we're here to provide osteoarthritis patients with direct access to the leading science as we all hunt for OA cures. And perhaps most important, with access to hope and an opportunity to get involved in funding new research and clinical OA treatments. If you'd like to make a donation to help fund new innovative science and OA cures, please hit the donate button on our website. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Elisayev, the professor and director of the Translational Tissue Engineering Center at Johns Hopkins. Jennifer is the leading research mind in the OA space, and she was kind enough to help me learn the ropes on the state of the art as I learn more about this disease and potential cures. Rather than focusing on a specific OA treatment, Jennifer rides with us on a gallop through the leading bioscience. From the science of growing new cartilage to regenerative immunology, how the immune system signals and orchestrates joint self-healing. Jennifer talks about the role of senescent cells. She talks about recent senolytic OA drug clinical trials, and of course about the new ARPA-H nitro OA moonshot, which we're all tracking very closely. The 411 on Professor Elisayev. As I mentioned, Jennifer is the director of the Translational Tissue Engineering Center and also the departments of biomedical engineering and orthopedic surgery, as well as chemical and biological engineering and materials science at Johns Hopkins. In short, Professor Elisayev is one of the preeminent minds in the global race to find an OA cure. Jennifer, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you for spending the time with us. And thank you for providing such a great on-ramp and education in terms of understanding this field altogether. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Could we start with where do you live and what do you do? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me talk to you today about arthritis. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And I am a biomedical engineer by training, but work closely with the hospital and various clinical departments. And, you know, I would say that Jennifer was really the first person that I met in my arthritis exploration journey and was good enough to make a series of introductions and explain some of the fundamental concepts. So I will be forever in your debt for that. So thank you for being so open. Oh, my pleasure. So how long have you been engaged in this field and what exactly drew you to the field of osteoarthritis? Well, I would go back to graduate school. So I started in graduate school looking how I could combine my experience in materials, sort of basic materials and polymers, also known as plastics, with regrowing tissues. And cartilage was a great place to start because we knew that when it's damaged, it can't repair. So it's a great first target if you're trying to grow new tissues. There's a significant clinical need for it. 
Also, it, it was avascular. And one of the challenges with building tissues that have a blood supply is how are we going to do that in a dish or even in the body? How do you get blood vessels to come into your new tissue that you're growing? And cartilage doesn't have that problem. So it was a nice place to start sort of as a foundation for this new field that was arising in, let's say, in the mid-90s is when tissue engineering started. So that was really the start of my interest in cartilage to begin with. That was really just rebuilding the tissue to start with, not the disease process of arthritis. So it was, you were sort of focused on this idea of creating or regenerating cartilage. And when you talk about it being avascular, could you explain a little more there, please? Sure. So tissues in our bodies are made of cells and cells need oxygen and nutrients, their fuel for you know what they do for survival, for living. So the blood supply is the way most of our tissues in the body get their fuel. And it can be hard to regrow that. So early on in the field of tissue engineering, liver was a big target. And there's a big blood supply in your liver and then cartilage. So sort of the two extremes of a really big blood supply and no blood supply. Let's talk a little bit about regenerative immunology. Maybe you could give us a 101 primer, explain for our audience. Sure. But actually, do you want to maybe step back of how we went from rebuilding cartilage to arthritis? And so the reason we sort of made that shift is, well, when you're trying to regrow cartilage, you think of a sports injury, let's say in a young athlete, you've got like a clear hole in the tissue, right? And you can fill it in, patch it up, right? And it's a young, healthy person. So probably great ability to repair. And then we sort of had this idea though, well, what about more when you have cartilage loss all over and what about when there's inflammation, right? So even if we take a great piece of cartilage, it's a beautiful piece of cartilage and you try to grow it in an environment that's going to be hostile or, you know, just inflammatory, then you're going to have a real challenge. It's a little bit like the seed in soil, right? You can have the best seed, but if it's in soil that is not going to be supportive of growing roots and growing your new plant, it's just not going to happen. So that's what sort of shifted us to, okay, we know how to build cartilage, right? But what about what's going on in people, right? It's not so clean of just replace the cartilage and everything will be all, all great. So um, that's how we got into this avenue of arthritis and what is the role of the immune system. And that, that sort of connects to the regenerative immunology part of all the things contributing to this major shift in, in our research. So before we get to regenerative immunology, let's just drill down a little bit on creating cartilage. Have we had success creating cartilage in the dish? I think so. When you pull the building parts of cartilage out, so the cells that make up cartilage are called chondrocytes, and they're pretty hardy. So if we put them in a 3D scaffold, right? So we're putting them in 3D and they can make tissue pretty nicely. If they're healthy cells, you can grow a pretty nice piece of cartilage and people have developed fancy bioreactors to put mechanical pressure on it. So it's like you're walking, right? Which helps mature the cartilage. So I feel like there was good progress on that. Now, the commercialization of that is another story, right? Because it's pretty expensive to grow the tissue and the bioreactors and then how you run the clinical trial. So there are companies out there like Histogenics that made really nice pieces of cartilage to put into people. But the disease itself is a little bit more complex than just putting in a new piece of cartilage. So what you're saying is 
we have had success creating cartilage. The question is, will that survive when it's transplanted into a hostile environment? Yeah. So how do you get it to integrate into a person's knee or knee or hip? And then what are the real factors that cause pain, right? Is it the quality of the cartilage that is going to determine if you don't feel pain or you do? It's not that clean of a system. And once the pain signaling is turned on, does it turn off once you restore the balance in the joint is another question, correct? Yeah. And there are different types of pain, right? There are different ways that you experience pain. And I'm not a neuroscience person, so I won't try to get into that. But I just know when we're looking at outcomes in our studies of if we've done a good job with our therapy, there are different ways we measure pain that are connected with those different pain circuits. But a really neat area of research just broadly is a connection between neurons and the immune system. So when you have inflammation, you can have pain. And then also neural innervation in tumors, how that impacts growth and neural innervation for tissue repair. So you might actually need a little pain or that neural innervation into your new tissue to make a healthy tissue. And it depends on the tissue type, of course, but at least on muscle, you need nerves to come in and communicate with those muscle tissues as you're repairing. In the cornea, the outermost part of your eye, you need neurons to be a part of that tissue repair process. Again, it's not always clean that no pain means that um, you've actually regrown nice tissue and you're all better. Yeah, no, it's a lot more complicated. And it's disappointing, of course, when you have these conversations like, oh, we can create cartilage. Well, let's just go do it and let's, uh, let's just fix everybody. But it's more complicated. With that background, let's chat a little bit about this notion of regenerative immunology. Maybe you could explain that concept sure. for our audience. Sure. So, you know, we started off looking at stem cells, both as a source to build tissues and then also how do we get your own stem cells to start working and rebuild? So a couple of different ways to look at it. And we did a few clinical trials, one for cartilage repair and one for these tissue fillers. And we saw some interesting immune responses. And this just got us thinking that, well, hey, maybe stem cells aren't the right target, but actually the immune system and the immune environment. And when I talk to immunologists, they say, well, yes, actually, when you have an infection, you actually have your immune system come in and it actually damages the tissue as it's clearing this infection. And it also contributes to rebuilding that tissue. So the immune system causes damage to protect you against an infection, but then it knows how to repair and contribute to that repair process. Some tissues are better than others in the repair, as we mentioned earlier, where cartilage isn't so good. So that was a little bit of our inspiration in addition to seeing all the advances in cancer immunology and just seeing the potential for manipulating the immune system as a therapy, I think was really inspiring. And maybe we just understand more about immune cells than we do now about stem cells, but you want to target the point that has the biggest impact. And the immune system seems to be just really a big orchestrator and all those downstream things related to stem cells making new tissue, the right blood vessels and nerve and innervation and just the whole tissue structure. And it's something that we have drugs to target. Still a lot more to learn, but I call it our lessons in translation. So by going through that process and putting a technology through the lab in a dish to small animal models, to large animal models, and then to people, 
you learn a lot about what's most important. And that in turn changes what we're doing in the laboratory. We learn from that, take it into account, and then redesign our therapies based on what looks like is happening in people. So that was our lessons in translation. And now I'm really interested in what's lost in translation. So these are all the factors that we don't have in that process that I just described in the technology development. What are those? Well, what happens with aging? So most of the people needing therapies are not going to be the young models that we use, right? So what does the aging environment mean? Sex differences. How will male and female respond differently to your therapy? History of infections. What has your immune system already seen? Diet microbiome, all these things that contribute to an immune response. And here we are saying that the immune system is important. All these other factors are having an impact on the immune system. So we need to think about that. And that's going to impact our therapies. So the same therapy you put in a young person is going to be different than you put in an older person. So very much personalized medicine, precision medicine is going to be a path forward. And as you're talking about this regenerative process, what we're saying is that it plays a significant part in the healing of the joint, and it's going to be an important factor whether you replace the cartilage or not. Yeah, so I see it as an alarm system, sort of red flags waving that there's a problem here. What is that problem? Is it the tissue damage? Is it the fuel, not getting enough fuel? Is it somehow the body's recognizing there's a problem in this tissue and it's an alarm? Once it sounds that alarm, you've got to be conscious of turning it off, because if it stays on, it's going to continue to attack the tissue. Is that correct? Well, it's going to at least continue to sort of stop that regenerative process. The immune system, let's say, is an alarm and you know, saying there's a problem, but it's also part of the solution. You want an immune response, but you want the right one at the right time. And that's what we're still trying to figure out. The immune response you need from an infection is different than the one that you need after tissue damage. And after you've repaired or, you know, in that process of repair, you need things to turn off. It's not just who's there, but it's when they're there and what they're doing. Yeah. I think, you know, for the lay listener like myself, the opportunity to come and I very much enjoyed your invitation to come to your lab and meet with your postgrads and Having them talk about the different approaches they're taking in order to try to unpick this and understand it, I, I love the conversation about Hellman's, uh, yeah. the parasitic worms, and how people who have been infected with these things, which we don't want, it changes their autoimmune response. So as a listener, it's like, oh my God, this is so complicated. How are we ever going to solve it? And I think what we need to do is obviously continue to pull on threads and, and remain curious, right? Yes. And looking at how things connect, really. I mean, you see anything in our world, it's not in isolation. It's influenced by other things around it. Whereas, say, drug development or technology development has historically been reductionist, which means we're going down to a single pathway. And it's easier to develop a drug to target a single pathway. But again, it's not in isolation. It's in a complex system. And if you think of how technology is developing for understanding how systems work, computational, machine learning, AI, all those things, we have a chance of really looking at how the system works together. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, obviously, we're trying to work out how to solve these problems and having that kind of processing power to allow us to do you know, massive scale is going to have, hopefully, 
help us drive huge breakthroughs. So as we look at this regenerative immunology, you've talked a little bit about it in the context of, of osteoarthritis, and obviously that's what we're looking at. Could you talk a little bit about the field of senolytics and anti-aging therapies? Because I know it's something you've played in pretty hard. Yeah, so senescent cells are quite fascinating. I'd say they were first discovered as you know a cell type that increases with aging. So you see more of these senescent cells accumulating with age, and if you get rid of them, these age-related diseases get better. So what does that mean? So what is a senescent cell? Right now, the definition is it's a cell that's no longer dividing, but it's really busy. And it's busy secreting a lot of things that are impacting the environment, which is pretty neat as we just talked about systems and you know things working together. So these cells, that's how they were characterized. Frankly, it's been hard to define exactly what they are. There's a huge push with this consortium that's called SenNet to understand what a senescent cell is. And we had a meeting a few months ago and all the experts around the world getting together. And I asked a simple question, what is a senescent cell? And it still wasn't clear. People could not agree on what a senescent cell is. There's still a lot to learn. I think as we talk about drugs or senolytics that target senescent cells, how can you develop a really good senolytic unless you know what it is. And so our paper came out around Halloween time. And so one of the writers that we spoke to called them zombie cells. And that was fun because it was around Halloween and it really caught on, but it's a little bit of a misnomer because that implies they're always bad. And what's really interesting with them is that they're a normal part of development in your body, sort of human development and also tissue repair. So you need senescent cells when you repair tissues, but if you have them around too long with aging, then they cause problems. They're kind of like your in-laws. They're fine for a while, but you don't want them to stay too long. Is that pretty much right? Yeah. Yeah. But also just like in-laws, there's a variety of them, right? And <laughs> you know, you can have good ones, you can have bad ones, right? Yeah. And so what we're spending a lot of time doing is understanding, well, who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones? And so it's not just the timing, but the type. And I think we're sort of getting down into that. Remember how I talked about the immune system being an alarm? I think senescent cells are essentially an alarm at the local tissue level. So maybe a primitive alarm system that's saying there's a problem here. It could be, I'm not getting enough oxygen. I'm not getting the food I need. And so those local cells are then going to be communicating with immune cells that come around or other cell types to really work on, hey, can we fix this tissue? And as long as it's not fixed, they're going to keep sounding the alarm. That's our current theory. And we're really excited about some results that we're getting digging down to different subtypes of senescent cells. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the subtypes and, and what's happening in the lab because senescent cells, it sounds a little bit like magic. You just kind of get rid of them and everything gets better. And not only does it get better, we get younger, which who doesn't want that? <laughs> and I think what's interesting too is it connects to our research 20 years ago on stem cells, where I noticed that stem cells could either be dividing which is a great thing about stem cells, right? That they can divide so much. They can either divide or make tissue. They're not doing both at the same time. So this is where I think of senescent cells as a signaling cell. They're not dividing anymore because they're busy giving signals or those alarms I talked about. And there are two places where we see senescent cells in our studies in arthritis, in fibroids, in tumor microenvironments. They're either around blood vessels or they're in the matrix. 
sort of the basic composition of a tissue is this matrix. So think of collagens. Most people have heard of collagens and they're the basic components of our tissues. So they're either making that, which is connected with fibrosis, which increases with age. We get a lot more fibrosis or scarring. That's which another- Which is bad. Yep. Which is yeah. Bad. So fibrosis is like scar, which is great to heal a wound that you, you don't want to be bleeding to death, right? So, you know, you seal up that wound and you have a scar. Now, a baby in the womb is not going to develop scar. If you have an injury in the womb, you actually get nice tissue repair. But as we grow up, we get more scar formation. Aging is associated with more, let's say, scar-like qualities in our tissues throughout, which I think is connected with this inflammation and senescence. So I see senescence as cells as signaling related to how much blood supply you need and how much matrix you're going to produce or sort of that basic tissue substance. So it's not as simple as get rid of senescent cells. It's understanding what the various senescent cells do and then selecting the right senescent cells for the right recipe. Yep. And figuring out which ones we want to target. So now in the lab, we're building models that allow us to selectively target different senescent subtypes and to see what happens when we get rid of one or the other. And what's promising? Could you comment any on that or is it still too early? I'd say what's promising is understanding the heterogeneity or the variety of stem cells that we have, which then allows us to go select, okay, what happens when we get rid of each one? Well, let's take a quick diversion before we dig more into senescent cells, which I would like to do. So ARPA-H, the federal government just released in May, the NITRO BAA, looking for proposals to solve arthritis in the next five years, very aggressive goals. I know that you're part of a team focused on NITRO. Could you talk about the program and its promise? The NITRO or ARPA process is really inspired by the DARPA programs, which were meant to develop, I don't want to say crazy ideas, but you know, science fiction ideas, let's say, and sort of dreaming. What would you dream to be able to do? And also to get people out of their comfort zone. Let's not just take the same old approach, but really bring in some different ideas, different brains to bring some new energy. Because clearly, you know, we've made some progress, but not as much as we would have liked. And if we just put a lot of energy and bring in diverse ideas and really start dreaming that we're going to get a better solution. So I think that's the inspiration. And so ARPA-H is applying the DARPA model to health. And there's ARPA-E for energy. I think shaking it up and getting people to think differently. Because in academia, in universities, you know, I'm a researcher and I train students and postdocs and they go out and start their own labs. So we're all biased by that history. Nicholas Necroponte at the Media Lab had a great comment once that history is the enemy of innovation. How do you sort of shake off our bias from the history and think different? Yeah, now I think it's interesting. I mean, if you look at Picasso, for example, all artists stand on the shoulders of other artists. And I think Picasso said that he could paint like anybody, but he couldn't paint like a child. So I think the idea of of changing the frame is excellent in terms of what ARPA-H is doing. And we're all cheering like crazy for success. Mm -hmm. I know the goals are aggressive. So thank you for your comments there. Could you tell us a little about UBX0101? This was the senolytic OA drug that excited the whole OA world. Everyone was cheering for UBX0101, but it failed the clinical trials. Could you talk a little bit about that drug? 
UBX is a senolytic, so as I mentioned earlier, a drug that is supposed to remove senescent cells. So early on, these drugs were sort of just came out of screens and screens based on sort of artificial senescence induction, or at least whatever models we could have for senescence. So this really was inspired by Ned David, who was one of the founders of Unity. And we'd worked together before and he called me up and he said, hey, I know you work on cartilage and there are these cells that seem to be really cool that for other diseases, if you remove them, it seems like you get a better disease outcome. So they're somehow causative in disease process. And so the eye and the knee or a joint was a nice place to start because it's a local, it's like a little bit of a local environment. So you don't have to give a drug systemically and, you know, expose your whole body to it. It'd just be local. So we did some work with various models and actually a number of years of work and showed that if you remove these senescent cells in our models, and these models were based on trauma, you have an injury that induces arthritis and can you reduce that? And so we found that removal of senescent cells did accomplish that. However, it didn't always work as well in older animals. So again, that's our, it's part of our inspiration of what's lost in translation. In this case, aging was. We passed on that data that was important foundation for Unity in their drug development. And, you know, there's a lot of work in drug development of how the drug, how long it lasts there in the body and safety. And so Unity did all of that work. And they did a phase zero trial to look at, hey, does the level of senescence or markers of senescence correlate with burden of disease of how bad the OA is, right? And it looked like a strong correlation, phase zero. And then you did a phase one study, looking at different doses. It's a safety study, but you sort of get an eye on efficacy. And then phase two, they did not meet in their endpoints. So they made it through phase zero, phase one, and phase two, they failed. Why? I'm not privy to information from the company, but talking to folks, there are a couple questions. It was during the pandemic where this recruitment was happening. So people's lifestyle did change and... We know people's physiology did change some during the pandemic. Was it which patients you recruit? So what is the right patient that could benefit? We don't know. I was told that some of the markers of senescence decreased nicely in that trial. So, you know, in some ways it might've worked, but which patients it did, who knows? So I still think there's potential. You know, our work as that trial was going on was looking at how immune cells talk to senescent cells. What we found is they definitely talk a lot to each other. And this gets into our discussion of combination therapies that, hey, we need to target senescent cells, but hey, there are immune cells that are going to make more senescent cells. So if you don't hit those two, it's not going to help. Again, senescent cells live in a system. So just targeting one part of that system might not be enough for a complex disease. Yeah, no, UBXO 101 is fascinating study for the layperson. Again, I, I first found out, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is going to solve all the problems. And funnily, there's also a lot of speculation about whether UBX0101 actually works. Yeah. I met with uh, Eleanor Sheehy at uh, Cambridge, who has speculated that the drug may actually work in you know, yeah. target 53 So as a patient, sometimes it's really maddening and the complexity is yeah. very frustrating. Yeah. And this, what well, the excitement was, this was a new target. So that's what's really exciting. And we're still understanding the target and it's hard being the first one out there. There's still a lot to learn. And I hope that people don't give up 
on senescent cells. It's a new approach, right? So when we talk about ARPA-H and you know, new ways of thinking, this would totally categorize as a new creative way of thinking, but you got to learn something along the way. So I hope we still continue down the path. Yeah. All the speculation about rapamycin and all these other interventions, repurposed drugs, they also go to this notion of removing senescent cells, correct? Absolutely. So what do you see as the future, Jennifer, the future potential for this immunology-based approach, the senescence-based approach? You're still pretty bullish on it? Yes. And I think the way we approach it hopefully will be evolving. One way I like to look at this is let's think of moving a car forward. So you have your gas pedal and you have your brake pedal. Now, a lot of times we're focused on the gas to grow tissue. That's the whole stem cell part or give growth factors, which are supposed to stimulate tissue growth. But if you have your emergency brake on or you're holding your brake down, assuming you have a decent car with good brakes, no matter how hard you push the gas pedal, you're not going to move forward. So we really need to think of the balance of both of those that we need to look at what are the breaks that are inhibiting that tissue repair, which includes an inflammatory environment and senescent cells, or at least certain types of senescent cells, and think about then how do we balance removing the breaks with pushing the gas. And sometimes just removing the brake, you can move forward some. So I'm thinking of a young patient who has robust repair capacity, you might just have to remove the brake. But those of us who are a little bit older, you might need to remove the brake and push the gas a little bit. And so what are the drugs and the combination that allow us to do that in the right way? That's a great analogy. I think you do a super job of explaining it. And I think it takes us beautifully into the next question I had, which is, how do you feel about these combinant therapies? So utilizing regenerative immunology treatments with some cartilage replacement or anabolic approach for the whole joint. Absolutely. I think we've talked about that at all parts of the seed and soil hypothesis that you you got to have the right environment for your cartilage and then the brakes on the gas pedal. And that was a little bit inspired by the cancer immunology field. The idea that there are checkpoints that put the brakes on your immune system and we remove those brakes so your immune cells can fight the cancer. So I'm really co-opting it from the cancer field in some sense. When I first talked to you, Jennifer, I was like, oh, great. I've found the Brainiac understands all this stuff. <laughs> She's going to tell me what the answer is. And what I found was, first of all, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to, to learn more, but it's a lot more complicated and it's going to take more time. And I think one of the questions that people who are listening to this podcasts are asking, because they've all got osteoarthritis, or they know somebody that has osteoarthritis, where are we in the journey to taking this stuff from the labs into the clinic and actually helping people? That's a great question. And I think in my discussions with you, it's become even more apparent to me that I'm not really pushing an idea right now, right? I'm not pushing a specific therapy that you might be hearing from other people who have their solutions that's going to solve the problem because I'm sort of taking a step back and thinking, you know, where are we going here? And how is our research in the lab that looks at, again, the pro-regenerative and the senescence, how are we going to put that together and impact the broadest patient population? Looking at how women suffer more from arthritis than men. African-Americans suffer more from arthritis than other races. 
how are all those factors, you know, the role of obesity, Farsh Gulak has studied a lot, how do all those things come into play? And think of also how we get achy joints when we have an infection. How does that connect? So I'm still in the process of putting that all together to develop some new strategies and new approaches, which really is the combination therapies that we've been talking about. On one hand, I'm excited about the future, but I'm also very skeptical about sort of going at the same old things the field is, has been looked at for a while. Yes. Now you go from one group to the next group and it's like, okay, here's the idea we've been promoting for the last 15 years. Yeah. I'm a great believer in having a lot of ideas, having good ideas and bad ideas, but you have to have a lot of ideas and you have to throw yeah. those at each other in order to try and work out something that might work. So, yeah, uh, a big theme in entrepreneurship is fail fast. So how do we fail fast? And of course, a way that's safe. You don't want to cause any harm, but fail fast. And then also just learn from those failures to design better. Fail fast is great, but nobody wants to eat their own children. And so, you know, <laughs> you know everyone talks about fail fast, but I've seen a lot of very, very slow failures that have been going on for decades. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, hopefully Nitro can help us accelerate through that. So with that, what is your outlook for a cure or cures to osteoarthritis? And what is it that we need to accelerate as we move from research to the patients? What are your words of wisdom in this area? Actually, I'm going to start with not quite answering that question and talk about combining different fields and the benefit of that. So as a bioengineer, I'm not particularly wed to any field. And I already mentioned how cancer immunology is really inspired some of our thoughts and including combination therapies that cancers and actually even rheumatology is a lot about combining therapies. So getting inspiration from that. And just to share, I think I told you this before, but share this crazy idea that we've seen with, in our models, creating a cartilage injury and seeing changes in a growth of a tumor somewhere else and a change in therapy response. And my rheumatology colleagues are doing a clinical trial now with patients who get immunotherapies and understanding why they get accelerated arthritis. So here's a great place that we can learn that is totally unexpected where, okay, we've got these patients getting this aggressive arthritis on cancer immunotherapy. How can we learn something from that then to leverage that to make a therapy going the other direction for the disease? So learning from other fields, I think is the way to go. And also a tumor has been characterized as a non-healing wound. There was a nice quote that was developed in the eighties that a tumor was a non-healing wound. And I'm extending that to aging. And the inflammation and the lack in tissue repair that we see with aging is a non-healing wound. And if you look at it more globally like that, you can then think about, okay, this is a non-healing wound, connecting all of those. And then how can we approach it from that perspective? I think we're going to learn a lot from sort of taking things from different fields and looking at it in a different way. And hopefully, you know, working with the FDA and regulatory authorities for how can we take a combination approach safely? So we're not doing any harm with patients, but really looking at it in a different way. Yeah. And looking at this system-wide approach, I mean, in my own circumstance, I have polyarthritis. There's no way that that happened spontaneously in multiple joints. There has to be something broader going on, even though the rheumatologist cannot detect anything. So yeah, 
So what do you see as the as the biggest challenges as we go forward? I think one of the challenges broadly is that we're getting so much data, whether it be genomics data for every single cell in a joint that's responsible for that arthritis. So you have every single cell in the joint, and then you have all the cells in the body. That's a huge amount of data. And how are we going to make sense of that to understand what in the system went wrong and what the right target is? So I think that's a great opportunity, but then also a great challenge. Right. And as you talk about opportunity, I think I guess that's the next question, but I guess that maybe takes us to artificial intelligence and machine learning yeah. and the ability to use some of these you know, massively scalable elastic computing models. Yeah. So we've got a project now where we've taken our models where the analytics are studied in young and old, and we've taken every single cell out of the joint and looked at what those cells are expressing to understand how are they different? And then how is the way they talk to each other different? What in that system's communication is getting off? Well, Jennifer, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of our audience for spending the time with us. I'd like to say thank you personally for all your mentorship and, and openness and education in terms of this osteoarthritis journey. And we look forward to staying in touch with you. I'd like to also thank you for speaking at the OA Shark Tank event that we hosted on the Hill with the other experts. So keep on rocking, keep on doing what you're doing. And uh, I'm constantly amazed by yourself and your team in terms of the insights that you turn up. Uh, thank you very much. Excited to keep talking. Great. Well, thank you, Jennifer. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Angry at Arthritis with Jennifer LSAF from Johns Hopkins University. We continue to try to move the ball forward in osteoarthritis. If you're interested in learning more, there are other podcasts. You can check out the uh, OA Fix that we recently released, providing a one-stop shop for accessing clinical trials. And if you're interested in supporting osteoarthritis research, please go ahead and hit the donate button. We appreciate your contributions. And as I said before, the patients are the most important force in terms of moving the ball forward and providing a cure for this disease. So thanks for joining us, and I'll look forward to seeing you on an upcoming episode. If you'd like to make a contribution to support the emerging osteoarthritis cures, you can do that on our website, angryarthritis.org. Just click the donate button. Angry at Arthritis is your platform to take action to end this disease. You don't have to be a Rockefeller. A $5 contribution here or there certainly adds up. Let's not get angry at arthritis. Let's get even.